0: It's Wednesday, May the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today I am joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Good morning, Hugh. I'm also delighted to say we're joined by Jane Souter, Director of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism in Dublin City University. Hi, Hugh. And a rare visit from our features writer, Patrick Frayne. Hello. Hello. Patrick, um, I'm going to go to you first because you're actually you've actually been doing some journalistic work this week. You know, so rarely in this studio <laughs> outside, we're usually joined by the political <laughs> team. Yeah. You've, you've actually been you know expending shoe leather, and uh, you were yeah. down at Limerick last week, and you're in Waterford this week, um, exploring the issues around this uh, not a referendum plebiscite, which is taking place in three cities alongside the local elections and European elections later this month.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I was going down to kind of generally take the temperature in these cities about what people feel about the future of the city more generally. And it always started, my days always started with discussions with people I planned to meet, like artists, politicians, business people. Um, They all knew about the plebiscite. But every day, both in Waterford and Limerick, ended with me doing a walk around the city centre, just talking to kind of random people I bumped into. And I would say over 50% of the people didn't even know that this was happening. Um, and those that d- did know that it was happening thought it was a terrible idea because all they knew was what it was going to cost. So there was very, very little engagement on this issue. Look, just for the benefit of the, probably the 50% of our listeners who don't know what the issue is, what
0: exactly is the proposal? Or the, well, the proposals for these three cities?
1: Well, that is the other thing, and maybe Pat can elucidate me a little bit on this. Like, it's a little vague. So there... There's going to be this idea is that we're going to have a directly elected mayor on the American kind of style, um, although the nature of how much of that power is going to be transferred to the city manager still hasn't been completely outlined. Yeah, I think I
2: think I, I think that's right. It's for directly yeah directly elected executive style yeah. mayors, but exactly how executive they uh, they will be, what powers will end up being transferred from. The city manager, or from central government to the office of the directly elected mayor, isn't clear.
1: So we don't. People don't really know what they're voting on, and that's so even amongst the people who are enthusiastic about that concept, they're a little bit iffy about what's going to happen in in practice. And the two things that kind of generally come up that people are worried about, the people who know about it are worried about, is that you'll get, like, an election of celebrity clowns, (laughs) you know, each more fascinating than the last and that it will become a real populist thing. Or on the... Surely local character. Yeah, or a local (laughs) character. Or, and you know, somebody who doesn't, like, being chief executive requires an awful lot of know-how. So people who know how cities are run are worried about that, although they like it in principle. And then other people are worried about um, that it will just turn into another typical Irish fudge that even though they like the idea of a directly elected mayor, if those powers aren't properly transferred over, you're just going to end up with another layer of bureaucracy. Another
0: ceremonial post as well, because, I mean,
1: you're in Limerick. They already have
0: two mayors. I didn't realise that. So this would be a third one. No, no,
3: what happens is they get rid of... So if nothing else happens, they get rid of the old ones. So say, for example, if we had it in Dublin like the, the Lord Mayor of Dublin City Council is just kind of button's turn whoever... It's a deal done up among the councillors. And they've so they, every, every time. They, no it, they have no
0: powers.
3: They have no powers. And if you first did it now, so you directly elect that person and they'd still have no powers, but you'd have directly elected them rather than the councillors doing a deal among themselves. So my understanding is in Limerick and Cork that that's what happens. Those old mayors who it used to just be a stitch up between the councillors go and this guy replaces them, But it's not
0: clear whether or not
3: he or she will get any more powers than the old guys had.
0: So just to delve into a little bit of this, Pat, there's been a long standing um, uh, critique among bien-pensant liberals like... The kind of like people who, who infest yeah. po- podcasts in the Irish <laughs> Times that you know that that the Ar- Irish local government is underpowered that uh, power is over-centralised in Dublin uh, that even at the local level councillors themselves who are the elected representatives after all uh, have very little power and a huge amount at local level is vested in these unelected j- uh, chief executives and that basically the whole system is is not not the way it should be and there were some moves to address some of these things post twenty eleven. Um, under Phil Hogan's tenure as... as uh, yeah,
2: I think part minister. of the problem, though, with that was that, first of all, I'm not sure how enthusiastic central government was about transferring any powers to local authorities. And secondly, it got mixed up with cost cuttings. So it came as part of a package of measures which, say, abolished the town councils, um, uh, which, you know, got rid of... Hundreds of elected uh, elected councillors all over the town, which Labour, which was in government at the time, now recognises or now believes to be mistaken as promised to uh, to reinstitute them. And again, the merging of some councils uh, that was done at the time was done uh, in in my, my my own native county of Tipperary. It was two county councils; they were merged into uh, into one as a as a long-term cost-cutting measure, not necessarily as uh, a well-thought-out plan to improve local government because local government has always suffered from two things. One, mostly the purse strings are held by central government and secondly, the people that are elected to local government aren't actually all that interested, many of them in local government.
0: Yeah, and then listen. I mean, what you're hearing on the on the ground, Patrick, um, there doesn't seem to be an information campaign, does there? Uh, no, well, at least I, if there is one, it clearly hasn't been very successful.
1: I feel like I feel like either this was designed to fail, or it's been really, really mishandled because uh, nobody knows about it. There aren't. I didn't see any posters about this. Uh, I spoke to local politicians as well, who said it doesn't. It's not coming up in the doors. And then I spoke to people who have spoken to local politicians at the doors who say they don't bring it up in the doors. So I, I just generally feel like this is the type of conversation we have on these podcasts, like you say, and it's the type of conversation people have about how you improve and reform local government and how you reform regional government, but that nobody had in public particularly, and, and so people don't really know what they're voting is on. There,
0: was there no requirement either at for the councils or for the government? to inform people of this if they're putting this question to the people.
1: Was there (laughs) a leaflet? Apparently. Well, there's no
2: referendum commission, a statutory body that's set up uh, to oversee how referendums are worked. And we will come back and I'm going to mention it before... Jane does because every political scientist that we have here mentions it. What we need is an electoral commission to oversee all elections, plebiscites, referendums, and uh, and television voting or viewer on uh, viewer voting that would take the responsibility. You just need to pissed off, Jane, now by Pu- taking her.
3: Time. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> But the the one person doing a campaign is actually Quinn Levin, who's a political scientist down in UCC. So he's doing his best, but he seems to be like a, a one man campaign. And I know people who say that they believe it was designed to fail by, uh, by Customs says. I don't know whether or not that's true.
0: Can I put this to you? Sometimes when we uh, sit around here wringing our hands about how dysfunctional parts of the Irish political system and the way in which people don't do the right thing, you look at me with this kind of world weary gaze, and you kind of, you kind of, you, well, you you do say that actually the politicians are just just reacting to the incentives, the electoral incentives of the population. This is what the Irish people want, and politicians are reacting to it. But in this case, this seems to me a classic example of machine politicians protecting their own turf by by as Patrick. Says designing something to fail, which Phil Hogan undoubtedly did when we had the the proposal for Dublin, and he structured it in such a way
2: that it fell uh, that that it fell by the wayside. I think that's part of it, um, and you know, look, I I, th- I think there's a large element of truth to what you say, but also I think a dynamic in this is that the uh, civil servants in the Department of Local Government. Um, uh, as was, don't want to cede power to local authorities. Sometimes that's for good reason. You see, like, where power has been taken away by bureaucrats from elected councillors in many places because of their abject failures to do things like, you know, agree local budgets, uh, you oversee waste management, that sort of thing that is uh, the sort of things that are handled by local councils all over Europe. Many Irish councils have proved incapable of doing it and therefore the bureaucrats step in. So there is, uh, there, there is a wariness in transferring both decision making executive autonomy to elected uh, councillors but crucially transferring uh, financial independence to uh, to local councillors and part of the weakness of local government in Ireland is underpinned by the financial structures. So, you know, local tax isn't raised in any meaningful way by the uh, by the local authorities. They are dependent, if a local authority, for instance, wants to build public housing, it's dependent on central government for the funds to do that. And not just for the funds to do it, but at various stages for approval of, you know, of tenders, of design and so forth there, uh, has to be approved by... Um, uh, by central government so uh, I, I don't think it's simply a, a case of local machine politicians so there's but there are all kinds that, of other issues but other which, machines, in which, in which in other countries are, 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 are dealt with well. much more at local level
0: education law enforcement loads of things not just planning we there's, always think about planning yeah, being bear in mind about. of course
2: that we are a, quite a small country
1: and there are um, pros and cons to that. I mean, having your, having some of this funding distributed from the centre means that regions don't get penalised for being poorer in the same way they get penalised in other ways because they don't necessarily always get the political patronage they need. And a lot of the people, I mean, like when I was talking about people not knowing about it, that was people on the street. So I don't think, I personally don't think it's going to pass in Waterford and Limerick. It could be totally wrong because this isn't scientific. When I do talk to people who, who think a lot about the structure of the city um, they're all for it but nervous about it. So they like the idea of that transfer of some political power back to somebody that could develop a bit of a vision for the city. But they temper that with a, with a nervousness that it's going to be meaningless or it's going to be um, a, another target for kind of celebrity candidates, people with silly ideas who... Or actually one of the other things that comes up is that um, it might very much be swayed towards you know, certain parts of a region. You know, that, you know, someone who might be popular in a certain area will get in and that will sway all of the funding in that direction in a way that I guess doesn't happen when you have an unelected city manager.
0: It kind of it speaks for a fairly fundamental lack of faith in democratic politics, that, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, and that comes up a lot in Ireland because <laughs> I think um, there's a general, like what I find fascinating when I talk to people in the street generally is that um, people... A lot of people distrust the politicians, but they also distrust their fellow electorate um, so I don't know what that says about our trust metrics in Ireland. Um, I think I re- read somewhere the difference between Ireland and Scandinavia is that in Scandinavia they do society really well and community badly, and in Ireland, we do community really well and society badly, and this Kind of feeds into that.
0: One of the things that struck me about your piece in Limerick, and I'm not sure if this is different from Waterford, was is this huge distinction between some of these people you people you talk to who are mm-hmm. academics, people involved in administration, people involved in the cultural life of the city, who speak very articulately about both Limerick's past and the problems it's yeah. faced and sometimes overcome, and is currently like it's quite an opti- optimistic piece in some ways about where Limerick's at right now. And also then they have, they have a real vision of of the future of Limerick as being, I'm sure Cork people wouldn't like to have read this, but Ireland's second city. Uh, having huge scope for yeah. development because of its geographical location and very various, various other advantages, and then you contrast that with the kind of with what you hear on the street
1: but th- I think that happens in a lot like a lot of people do feel like they 're not listened to and left behind, and people like us get listened to a lot, you know, and which is why there's probably this plebiscite because this comes from people who have been having these conversations among themselves and are listened to by politicians um, but there's another core to people who are never. Listen to and this is increasingly what the impression I got even when was, I was touring around Britain interviewing people about Brexit um, the massive thing I just feel like lots and lots of people just don't feel ever heard or listened to and I'm not sure you can talk about specific policies and maybe um, there are policies out there that would really, really benefit those people but they feel like they're not feeding into it and they don't have any stake in it um, and over and over again you get that disjunction
2: at the same time, there's this curious contradiction. I think what Patrick says is absolutely, uh, absolutely true about how many people relate to politics. But at the same time, I always find the accusation... That Irish politicians are out of touch with ordinary people to be absolutely laughable. Irish people are the our Irish politicians are the most in touch with their voters of any polity in the in the Western world. Any Irish voter can ring or call in, uh, can ring their politician or call into their uh, uh, to their advice clinic, can unreasonably expect. To be uh, uh, to be spoken to by the politician in person. Some uh, some of the exact statistics going out of my head. Maybe Jenkins enlighten me. But one of the election studies done on one of the recent elections found that something like seventy percent of uh, of people had been asked for their vote directly. Personally, by either the candidate or somebody, um, uh, or somebody asking on their behalf, so there is a massive connectedness between Irish politicians and the Irish uh, and the Irish public.
1: But it's not on that society. So I agree with you, and I think I mean I'm, I've become a, more of a fan of the Irish system that I was um, over, when I was younger. But the problem is that a lot of those politicians and that individual experience that people have with politicians is about a locally focused politician fixing 50,000 individual problems rather than dealing with kind of collective problems. And that is a problem that, you know, the electorate feeds into as well.
3: Both things are actually true. So on the one hand, Irish people are remarkably close to their politicians. And as Pat says, politicians knock on the doors and people get to have their spake at the door. But that's usually very much about a local issue. On the other hand, people don't feel listened to in terms of kind of larger problems or larger kind kinds of policy. That's one of the reasons the um, the Citizens Assembly and the Constitution Convention and those kind of things worked well. And it was amazing at those you amount of people who would say, this is the first time that uh, I feel anybody's taking me seriously. So rather than me going with a, a grievance about the hole in front of my door and somebody fixing it, somebody's actually listening to what I think about an issue. So these are two very different things. So everybody in this room, if we think stuff about an issue, there's plenty of people can sit in this room and loads of people will listen to us. But there's lots of other people, if they've got a thought about an issue, they feel that nobody ever listens to them and they're not taken seriously about it. So that's one of the kind of strengths of kind of doing participation. So interesting enough, in the the Dublin um, mayor one, the proposal is to have um, a citizen assembly for Dublin, for Dublin people to do it. Now, of course, the only reason for this is really to go around the back of the think all politicians who, as you noted earlier, Phil Hogan managed to manipulate to be able to stop the process last time. So, um, you know, quite how that'll work, I'm not sure. But I think that's the, the two different things, the kind of closeness and then the listening are actually on two different dimensions.
0: But you've, I mean, you've been involved in doing some work uh, with Theresa Reedy, looking at the actual physical, the political manifestation of some of the feelings of alienation, which, uh, which Patrick is talking about and which we've seen electoral expression of in nearly every other European country, I think now perhaps bar Portugal. Uh, we've seen it pretty much any, every, every, everywhere And the question has always been, um, is Ireland somehow inoculated against an electoral expression of some of those trends, perhaps because of the the, the closeness of politicians to the electorate or perhaps for some other reasons? And listening to what you're saying here, I wonder about the European elections, because you you can't possibly for... You know, physical reasons have that close connection. Have that seventy percent of electors coming in contact with the politician when you've got a constituency that stretches from Greystones to Dingle, for example. Um, so, is that perhaps where there's an opportunity for these kinds of issues to uh, to emerge? Because I, I, mean, I look at I look at some of the candidates that we have in the elections coming up. So in you Europeans. mean with
3: like an anti-immigration? Well, like an you an an look at Peter Casey, who's yeah. already
0: had some electoral success in the in the presidential election, yeah. and you look at there are there are three so candidates in Dublin just. Um, just you know, just to name them. And they, they all represent different strands of what you might call contemporary populism. One is a, a, a direct democracy candidate, cut out the politicians and have direct votes. That's Ben Kilroy. Mm. Herman Kelly is an anti-EU candidate. And Gemma O'Doherty is uh, traffics in racialized conspiracy theories and, uh, and anti-immigrant rhetoric.
3: Yeah. Um, and I don't think any of them are actually in danger of taking a seat. So... Um Not even Casey. I don't think Casey, some of the, the things I've seen, like there's a possibility he'll go, he'll go for the last one. But I think Mairead McGuinness is going to have two quotas. Um, so it depends where, uh, where she kind of distributes them.
2: Um, I think he will have to dislodge. We talked about this last week. I think Casey will have to dislodge uh, probably Ming Flanagan if he's going to take a seat, and that's a fairly tall order.
3: That's a tall order, and he's very, he's very popular there. Like, there are people who agree with kind of... Um, there are people with populist attitudes here, and what is true um, is that there <coughs> hasn't been a party which is kind of peddled in that.
0: So, Can we define populist here?
3: Well, OK, let's t- talk about populist nativists. So there's people with anti-immigrant attitudes in Ireland, but they haven't actually had an anti-immigrant party. To vote for. And so their votes have spread between different parties, Sinn Féin, slightly Fianna Fáil, a lot of independents. And so there is, there is a constituency of people there. There's kind of 18% of people who um, would say that to be Irish, you should be Catholic. Um, you know, and. To be Irish, you should be Catholic and um, born in 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 Ireland. So there is that um, constituency of people, but whether that's the most important thing that they're going to vote on is uh, is a very different thing. You know, there's twice as many people who say that actually climate change is the is the thing. You know, there's 34 percent of people say that you know climate change is the major issue. And, there is you know, a difference, though, between I what people say and how Pat's, people vote, isn't there? there because, I mean, is, if, that, yeah. if
0: that were really the case, you would expect the Green Party to the be Green getting Party, five times as many I, votes as it That's what gets. I was going to
3: say. I read Pat's piece you know, uh, last week and he was on, on the podcast here talking about you know, why won't the, the Greens run away with the European elections? And they should. The Greens should have a seat in, um, in each constituency. They should be one of the, the top two or three in each constituency. If people voted on climate change being being the major issue. So I don't know, either the Greens haven't... They talk about
2: it, but whether they vote about it is the vote most important or, issue or, whether or not. It's a sort of relation to, you know, the, the the mistake, we've talked about this here before, the mistake that um, anti-abortion campaigners have, have always made, which is why while there are, you know, going on the results of the referendum last year, a third of the electorate, you know, who are... Uh, to one degree or another, anti-abortion. There is only a very small percentage of them who think it is the most important issue to vote on in a general election, such that they will vote for a candidate that is that has that as their primary political. Well, I suppose the point
0: mm-hmm. might uh, might, be, uh,
2: might be something uh, similar. Uh, while with while, while,
0: while accepting mm. that, um, Pat, it, it it does strike me as well that while there might be specific issues that aren't going to drive people to vote for a political party, there is also this much broader phenomenon which is taking place across the Western wor- world in America and in Europe, which is this sense of uh, a reactionary movement fueled by a dissatisfaction with the current dispensation in these societies, very often a sense that uh, that that change is happening in a way that's negatively affecting certain communities, um, uh, working-class communities in post-industrial landscapes and various things. We know what that kind of story is from, from Michigan to Sunderland. And to you can't divorce wherever. that from
2: the economic context, though, which has seen, you know working class communities left behind, not that their standard of living has fallen, but that it hasn't risen yeah. in parallel with or in tandem with the rising living you know, standards. And more with climate
1: change. I think the big thing in Ireland that makes us different, I, I kind of realised this a few years ago, because I was writing about populism, um, is that we don't have a glorious past to hark back to. And that's very hard for people to galvanise around. I mean, you'd have to go back a long way to like some sort of mythical... Celtic idyll before you can go, that's the era you want to talk back to. Every single populist movement seems to have that. Like, we're a post-colonial country, and so our nationalism is progressive nationalism. It's never based on, you know, if it's based on a path, it's based on a Celtic twilight, not on the 19th century or the 50s.
3: Yeah, but also there was a paper, just a really interesting one, just published two days ago on what's actually driving uh, populist voting um, across um Uh, 15 different countries, I think, they looked at. And what they said, the primary thing is anti-elitism. So, um, and the thing that drives it most is um, being left behind. So the bigger the kind of gap um, that that works. So what we actually have quite large, I know lots of people would like larger, but we actually have quite large transfers. um, So there isn't as big a
2: gap. Financial transfers financial between transfers, you know, the wealthiest in, well in the EU. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the reason we have the biggest one of the reasons we have the biggest social transfers in the EU is because we have the biggest uh, social inequality gap. Before we make those. Before transfers. we make well, so the transfers. So we, we need
3: so so there's there's transfer there, there to is, do it. Yeah, yes, to. Yes. But that we is. don't. Both of those things are true. For example, if you look at the the maps of social deprivation in Europe, it's amazing how many of them are in the UK. You know, whole swathes of uh, Northern England. Some constituencies in Northern Ireland, you know, there's really deep deprivation and and poverty in a lot of those places. And there's also a real elite because of the class system. So here the there isn't the there's obviously an elite and there's obviously deprivation. But I don't think the differences are on the scale that they are in some other countries, and it's those two things that really drive it. What do you think? Now about that, that doesn't mean that we should be complacent no. and say it won't happen. No, for... It's just one of the reasons why. We haven't
0: accelerated with the others. Because, Patrick, I mean, you were doing, as you said, you, you were doing these reports on Brexit, the Brexit heartlands, I suppose, some of which are the areas which Jane is talking about in the UK. Do you see a a, a substantial difference between what you saw there and what you would see in Yeah, in the I, I cannot so?
1: hesitate to say it because I don't really have access to the facts, but it felt like in Britain... Don't let that stop. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like um, in the UK, people were more divorced from the centres of power, partly because of their system there, that people, I mean, they obviously have more food banks because they need them. They've got um, a much more penalising social welfare system than Ireland has. Um, And I generally find when I do vox pops in Ireland, apart from the directly elected mayor thing, people tend to know what's going on. Whereas in Britain, I met people the week before the Brexit vote two, three years ago, who didn't know there was going to be a referendum. And, you know, that's on a different level to the directly elected Mm. mayors of Waterford, Limerick and Cork. Um, So my, this is purely perception, my perception is that uh, Britain has gone a little further down a darker road than Ireland has.
0: In terms of the way the politics work, Jane, one of the things that seems to me, and this is just me looking at it from outside, is that... When these broader trends manifest themselves electorally, they need something to kind of kickstart them. They need an issue, whether it's a Brexit or a Mediterranean refugee crisis in Italy or the Catalan crisis in Spain sparking the rise of of Vox. And those things can be unpredictable. I mean, an economic crash is is probably the most obvious one that can do it. But that, that would require something similar here, some sort of crisis moment or dramatic moment, which, which we just haven't had.
3: Which yeah. we haven't had to... Oh, we have, have to, had, we had it in 2008. <laughs> well, yes. And sure. then, you know, there was huge electoral change and huge volatility after 2008. And then, again, not to hark on about it, but interestingly, one of the reactions of the government here was actually to set up institutions which were about actually listening to people and about taking their, their views into into account. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that, uh, that actually matters. And then when you look at the other side, at some of the nativists running that we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder whether some of that is, there's obviously, there's a there's a core constituency, there are people who are anti-immigrant and so on, but some of it is also that are very much plays to media logics of kind of division. And, you know, I remember last time with the, You know, in the presidential election, you know, a whole pack kind of following um, himself, uh, you know, down to, was it somewhere in Tipperary to, you know... Peter Casey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I just wasn't saying the name. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but but following him down to, you know, a traveller encampment in... (laughs) (laughs) in uh, in Tipperary. So I think some of this is kind of driven by kind of media logics and wanting a story and, you know, liking to have that kind of a thing. You know, like he he was on, um, you know, the Onya Lawler one and on Pat Kenny. Like how many other independent candidates are getting quite the media attention and, and focus? Not so many. So, you know, it's the same sort of thing that you saw... With the the American median and uh, Trump, you know, they just he played so much into the media logic thing that every the whole thing just became about him, and there became a certain kind of you know inevitability. But, about yeah, the and whole there thing. is there
0: is undoubtedly the role of the media, but there there seems to me to be a change if if for the first time we have an election where we have the face of a politician on the side of a bus who's arguing. That there is a Jewish conspiracy to racially change Ireland, and that has to be stopped within this generation. Something has changed if, we, if that's happened.
3: Yeah. Well, you see, this is the thing the that is, has changed. the thing has yeah. changed is the world. So, like, I was actually in uh, to drop a name. I was actually in the the UN um, Monday this week, talking about disinformation and its spread on uh, on social media. So those kind of narratives that kind of make people fearful and make them angry. That's what the social media algorithms drive at people's feeds. You know, that's the kind of nonsense that they that they then start spreading. And uh, so that's what's changed. Facebook has changed the world. Um, And, you know, this kind of negative story, anything that can make you fearful, anything that can make you angry, you know, scared that you're going to be replaced and so on. So that's spreading all around the world on Instagram, on Facebook, even in WhatsApp and in parts of the world and so on and if you're um a politician who's or a wannabe politician who isn't getting much attention it totally makes sense to have that sort of content and try to have it spread around so and the algorithms will do the rest of the work for you yeah, but it's not
2: just the, the work of nasty algorithms as well it's also a response to people to their own both their own economic and social circumstances so to go back to the UK there is whether we like it or not whether we agree with it or not whether we think it is based in uh, in, in, in a reasonable uh, description of their society now, there is widespread resistance to high levels of immigration in the UK. And that was something that people felt was not taken seriously by successive governments. And the vote about it was, and ironically, uh, less than half of total immigration to the UK before 2016 or in the 10 years before 2016 was uh, from EU countries. But that was a primary driver of that campaign in uh, uh, especially in many of the sort of communities that uh, that Patrick was talking about. And that is an objective reality and we can't just wish that away. So
1: the thing that fascinated me the first time I was over in particular was how many of the issues of people who were going to vote leave were really, if you drilled into it, economic issues. Not so when they talked about migration, most of the people weren't, I, 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 st- has, has straightforward racists. Like they were saying, they were worried about queues in the NHS. The same people would say, "Oh, I mean, the the, doc- the Indian doctor was lovely, but there was loads of people in the waiting room who weren't from England." So you're talking about like a country that's been dealing with austerity for years. like if there was a competent left in Britain they would have turned that issue around in a way that I think, to some degree, Sinn Féin have done in, in Ireland. They have made the issue not about migration, they made it about austerity. In, in Britain, uh, the people like Farage managed to turn an issue that I think is very much based on economics rather than and based on... It's uh, based austerity. on culture as well, though, you know? I'm not sure, because if you look at uh, the places that voted... V- very much for Brexit, and you know, the biggest issues of migration. they are places that don't have much migration, and if you look at the cities, um, people tend to. Yeah, be but, it's,
0: but it's possible to be psychologically worried about that stuff without it being confronted mm-hmm. by well, it. Well, like your the
1: Charlottesville, you know,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people will not replace us, you know. So there, there is this kind of fear of dilution of identity
2: to some extent. That's not new, but what's new is that it's so is widespread it? now. But it's that it's yeah,
3: so but that's politically the way it's pungent. being kind of pushed because it's that kind of fear and. You know, it's our, it's our emotions, and, yeah, and this is what the exactly. this is what
1: the issue is. Is the issue is that that old working class identity was not killed by migration. That old working class identity was was killed by how by society AI. has changed, and well, and, and I, also
0: by globalization and the move yeah. of manufacturing yeah. to Asia and all that. So, kind so of if yeah. if
1: those people felt like they had a stake in society, there would be a very very different response to this. And if you had, I believe, if there was a competent left, I believe, I don't know what Labour has been doing in Britain for. Thirty years, but I think if there was a, a competent left over there, all of these issues could have been turned around. But isn't it the case it that the
0: that the left, Jane, which appealed to a lot of this electorate, which is now shifted to the uh, to, to the populist right? Um, It has changed so much over the last 30 or 40 years anyway. So if you look at, you know, rising support, the the local elections in the UK last week in university towns, middle-class areas, backlash against Labour and more working-class pro-Brexit areas, you see exactly the same thing happening in the United States where the Republicans uh, are a right-wing party which is increasingly reliant on uh, on white working-class votes and the Democrats are notionally a centre-left party which is increasingly reliant on middle-class and upper-middle-class votes. So that whole traditional world of class alignment on the left-right axis is just collapsing, isn't well, it? Well,
3: it's been changing, and part of that is kind of the rise of identity politics. So it's kind of where left-right is kind of morphing into more of a kind of an identity politics type thing. But on the other hand, in Spain, uh, what, two weeks ago, we saw it completely the other way around, where the centre-right were, were very much wiped out. the uh, The left did really well. And yeah, there was some move to the far right, but that got... That got a lot of attention well, because they're not the
0: exception. Because really, well, in terms the, it seeing, could be the beginning else.
3: of what. So there has the move that you're talking about has been something that's been happening since the kind of the the third way when um when Labour changed its economic policies and so on. And some of that is changing back. If you actually look at the the policies of the of the left in Spain, they're in no way third way or or anything like it. So. Yeah, old stuff. Yeah, so um, it could be that, you know, some of this is beginning to to shift again. Um, It's too early to tell, but, you know, there are people who believe that we've come kind of almost to the end of that sort of uh, period that you're describing there.
0: Well, take a break and then we'll come back. We'll talk about how broadband's going to save us all. You're listening to the Irish Times. So, Pat, good value for money in the broadband plan?
2: Too early to say Um, Well the government Certainly thinks so It stresses That you know This is an investment Which is taking place Over 25 years And that while The sum of 3 billion Is vastly more Than uh, people had expected uh, when the project was uh, was first mooted, or in, in much of the period since the project was first mooted in 2012, um, uh, I mean, Leo Verneitker was stressing at yesterday's press conference that, uh, you know, this is a subsidy of €200 Euros per year per rural household to get broadband over 25 years, and that's, uh, that's good value for money. I query his... Uh, his maths pending or his arithmetic pending uh, some more information from the Department of Finance and Public Expenditure which we may get today there's a document dump expected probably sometime this morning uh, which will also outline some of the objections that the Department of Public Expenditure had on a value for money basis and uh, so it would be interesting to see what's in that so, I mean,
0: Riddle me this there's quite a nice ad on the telly at the moment for AIR about the, the, the fine people of Aranmore, an island off the coast of Donegal and how they're getting very very high fibre broadband installed in the island and how it'll keep the island alive into the 21st century and you'll be able to work there as if you were working in Dublin or even New York and it all sounds great and Moore is looking lovely and it's a lovely place but everybody in the country if I live in a, if I build a cabin on top of the most remote mountain somewhere, or indeed if I own my own private island somewhere off the coast of Ireland, I am entitled to uh, the state providing me at huge cost, possibly, with, uh, with high, high quality broadband. I'm entitled to that now. Yes. Legally.
2: Yeah. Well, contractually. By commitment of the uh, of of the government and in the contract, although we haven 't seen the fifteen hundred pages of the contract thank God uh, yet, it will be stipulated that um, that that broad, broad national broadband Ireland which is the the company that will uh, that will d- d- deliver the connections, cannot refuse to bring broadband to anybody 's house by uh, on, on grounds of Cost, so um, uh, so. If you are retiring to your private island uh, in uh, in West Cork or to your hilltop cabin in Donegal, and you want to watch your Netflix, or uh, as a Taoiseach um, uh, rather improbably uh, laid out as justification for it, the increased use of e-government services over the next twenty years. So, if you want the full gamut of e-government services to be delivered. To your private island in Cork, then you have to be provided with uh, an internet connection. With one caveat now, uh, which is that if the cost goes over five thousand per uh, uh, for, for your for your house, five thousand euros for your house, you may be asked to make uh, a contribution. But because the most that the company will be allowed to provide other. Uh, means of communication, uh, other means of, of supplying broadband, uh, say five G for two percent of the. Uh, okay, of so the they total. don't necessarily they have to lay that under- undersea, cable to lay the to the undersea cable uh, to my uh, <laughs> island. to It's also
3: not clear how much they're going to charge for it. You know, like at the end of the day, it's a private monopoly.
2: Well, and we know a little bit up, about that,
3: and it could go into the ESB or somewhere, which actually does go into everybody's house, and it could be. You know, so I'm not so See, what, sure what, about this private monopoly what, business.
2: What will happen is that uh, National Broadband Ireland will build out the um, will build out the network, but they won't be selling you the broadband. That will be Air or Vodafone or Siro or somebody uh, or somebody else. So they will do the connection to your door. Uh, National Broadband Ireland will do it to the bottom of uh, of of the road. Or in Hugh's case to the last the pier on the mainland and uh, then it will be up to Vodafone uh, to connect you uh, to connect all the houses that are passed and so National Broadband Ireland will be a wholesaler of broadband to the, uh, the uh, to the individual It's still
3: companies. a private monopoly and it's still not clear exactly what's
2: going to be charged uh, The prices uh, it, will be, it will be in the contract and uh, I, I feel I feel like government spokesman here but <laughs> the, the, the 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 price it would be written into the contract that the price cannot be more than uh, you're paying in uh, in Dublin. There are legitimate questions here legitimate. about about the, the private
0: monopoly which uh, Jane refers to about the fact that there's going to be a huge amount of state investment and at the end of it you have a, a, an enormous infrastructure which is owned by you know a private company and you know we saw what happened with air you know we, so there's legitimate kind of questions about yeah, that. but on the other hand Patrick I mean part of me feels that the, one of the one of the negative parts of the history of this state has been an underinvestment in capital infrastructure going back to the to the 1920s, oh. a refusal to provide, you know, decent train services, decent commuter services, or you could, proper spatial planning, all that or stuff. Or you
1: could argue that the problem has been the political deployment of any infrastructure and, like, even, like, why are they voting on it now? It's because, because of an election coming up, right? Like, and it, do you think they should be banned from making decisions like this in the 6 months running up to like it's a huge amount of money for something that looks to my eyes like a massive waste of money that isn't well, particularly thought through I
2: think there's there's there's, there's a couple of very valid Questions about the about the on the value for money basis. The first of them is the one that you raise about the fact that the network will not be owned by uh, by the state after twenty five or thirty five years, as a ten year possible extension at the end of the twenty five years, and the fact that the state will not own that. Now, in uh, in defence of the the contract, what they would say is that the state actually is already. I mean, in in, in a way, that ship has sailed. So the the old Aircom. Elect, uh, telecoms network that this will piggyback on that's not owned by the state either in fact Aircom are going to or Air is there now are going to be one of the big winners from this because they will charge national broadband Ireland which will be funded by us to run their cables along their wires and their telephone poles, um, uh, and they're going to make a billion euros uh, uh, or, or so out of it. But that is, uh, uh, I think, a substantial problem with that the network or the part of the network that is built by uh, uh, National Broadband Ireland doesn't revert to the state after uh, after 25 years. The the parallel that was made a dozen times yesterday by the T. and other ministers that this is like rural ele- electrification. Well. Up to a point, it is if a private company owned the network, the electricity supply network. Uh, after the forty years of and rural how, electrification. why
3: not put it along the electricity network, which does go everywhere and does have poles, and is owned by the state.
0: Pat, seeing as you are our government
2: spokesman here today, <laughs> well, I, I'd like to thank you for that question. <laughs> no, of course that's a that's a that's a really you know that that's a really pungent question. The other question, I think, about. The value for money question is, what is the take up of this going to be? And we've written about this on a number of occasions uh, in, in the paper. If you look at, so this is the 500,000 most remote homes, 540,000 most remote homes. And um, AIR have, uh, uh, have a project to connect the 300,000 next most remote homes uh, in, and, 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 and premises. And they, at the end of last year, the middle of last year or so, they had uh, offered connections to 200,000 of those homes. And the take-up was about 14%. Now, they expect to double that over the lifetime of, uh, of that project. But you're still talking of considerably less than half of the people who've been offered the, uh, a, a broadband connection to their home or business actually taking it up. Now, part of it, is, part of that is because they have other solutions. They have satellite broadband or they have, uh, you know, they uh, they get by with mobile broadband. Part of it is because they are elderly bachelor you're farmers gonna a, You're going to make a pejorative up
0: statement the, about bachelor farmers. Bachelor farmers, the, as of
2: as much right, in fact, there may be certain they, online no, services no. they might be more absolutely, interested in. That. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. They have as much right as you or I uh, to, uh, to broadband. The question is whether they will take it up or not because the experience of the other providers has been that they are, the more remote you are, and clearly there are people in, before everybody you know starts texting in, there are people in remote areas that want broadband. Nobody disputes that. But the more remote you are over a large sway of the population, the less likely you are. There's a strong correlation between people not taking it up and how remote there are, which goes back to our Bachelor Farmers up again uh, the Boreen and Balanced Galax. So, um, I think there is a significant question about the ultimate take-up of this. A network that would be put in at vast expense to the public. Chunks of it I think, will end up not being used at all. Jane, how much of
0: this do you really think is about Leo Varadkar being worried about Fine Gael not getting the rural vote out? And there are some rumblings, one gathers, and within Fine Gael, that there's a concern about that.
3: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. As Patrick says, you know, be interesting uh, if they weren't allowed to make the announcement for... Six weeks before, would they've made it six weeks after these elections? Well, maybe they would, because maybe the next elections are in June or something. So maybe we have to wait until after that before they should be allowed to make the announcement. And well, obviously, it. the
0: good part of it is is that rural bachelor farmers everywhere will find it easier to listen to this podcast once that the, once this scheme is being completed. So every An every cloud is a silver lining for our <laughs> political coverage. I can tell you. Indeed, it is. Listen, we'll leave it there. Thanks to Pat and to Patrick and to Jane for joining us. And that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thanks also to those of you who have been in touch with me with your own thoughts and suggestions about the subjects we've been discussing over the last few weeks on the podcast. Those messages are always interesting and they're often very helpful to me personally in thinking about what we should be covering and how we should be covering it. You can send them to me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can at me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening.